Well, hey, this is your old friend Bill. Whenever I find myself in Davis, I'm busy putting the fun in fundraising. But when I'm not, I always listen to KDVS 90.3 FM. And you should, too. Go Aggies! This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. There is a lot going on this week. Joining us on today's program will be Sean Mitten, Pacific Northwest sportscaster and reporter, and of course, one of our favorites on this program. Sean will be making something like his seventh appearance on the show, and uh, you know, as always, we expect him to be good listening. Special announcement before we even get into the program today, uh, a night of comedy tomorrow night is scheduled at the historic Crest Theater to commence at uh, 7.30 p.m. It will feature America's foremost political comic, Will Durst. We're a big fan of Mr. Durst on this program. We have quoted from him on numerous occasions. We will hope to secure an interview uh, with him to air on next week's program. Um, This will be a benefit for Transitional Living and Community Support, Inc. Will Durst is a very funny guy. We recommend highly that uh, you go to this benefit, do what you can to support a worthy cause, and enjoy the comedy stylings of really America's foremost political comic. All right, yesterday's cover of the Sacramento Bee. Big story. Recall is going to go forward for Governor Davis and over in Iraq. Saddam Hussein's rather nasty sons, Qusay and Uday, were killed in United States military action in the northern part of the country. There's a lot we can say on those subjects, and we will. But uh, the story that really kind of captivates me is is the impending premiere of Seabiscuit, the motion picture based on Laura Hildebrand's New York Times number one bestseller, Seabiscuit, an American Legend. I finished reading this book a couple of days ago. I'm quite knocked out. I think that um, if unless the Hollywood people, after spending $80 million to bring this to the screen, unless they just completely drop the ball, this is going to be a very compelling story up on the big screen. Now, no other racehorse has ever rivaled Seabiscuit's fame or his sway over the nation's imagination. But the movie is supposed to be about people. Three people that, uh, that made, in essence, the legend of this famous horse, Seabiscuit. Charles Howard, his owner. Red Pollard, the jockey who rode him, for the most part. And Tom Smith, the man who trained the horse. Now, it so happens, uh, living in the area is someone that rode the famous Seabiscuit. That's Mr. Frank Sorcy. Frank is 83 years old. He was a jockey for 12 years. He won 800 races, and he's here to talk to us briefly today about Seabiscuit. Frank, are you there? Yeah, I'm right here. Frank uh, is 83 years old. He's a Sacramento resident, and uh, he was a jockey for what? 12 years. 12 years. And I think people that see the movie or read the book can relate to what that was like being a jockey back then. It sounds like that was a tough road to hoe. Yeah, it was pretty rough. A lot of broken bones. How many did you break? Well, my arm and my leg and my head and my wrist. <laughs> what happened with the head? 
as fractures go. That's the horse at Bay Meadows. They they made quite a write up about it, jockey near death, and they put they made a headline thing out of it. That was in '48. And then and that was the that kind of was the career ender for you, or yeah, yeah, yeah for riding horses, yeah. And like I say, I I started uh, to ride again, and my wife would get too nervous. So I guess you started about 1936 and went to 48. Yeah. That puts you right in the uh, the Sea Biscuit era. They certainly talk about Sea Biscuit being a very unusual horse. When you when you rode him, did you have a sense this was really this horse was really something? Well, when he run, he act like it wasn't putting out no effort at all. He was just playing. But you had to force him. Then he did run. He had a long stride, longer than the other horses. Each stride he'd gain a, a six inches or a foot, whatever. Uh-huh. And that's the way he was. Yeah. Not that he ran real fast, but he did have a long stride. So he was kind of like in high gear, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the the book talks about the fact that he was kind of a, by, by the, the standards of a thoroughbred, kind of an ugly horse. He, he wasn't really slick like a like a, most thoroughbreds are, yeah. yeah. Like a saddle horse. And he was real uh, gentle, easy to ride. Very easy to ride. He yeah. didn't jump around and kick. or Most horses, they bounce around and buck and everything. Yeah, that, they talk about that in the book, that he was just a very unusually calm horse. Calm, yeah, real calm. Frank, you haven't seen the movie. You read some of the book. No, I have not I read seen the some movie. Some of the book, and I'm going to see the movie Friday. Yeah, of course. Uh, I, guess the, yeah. I guess the movie opens in Sacramento uh, tonight, Thursday. But oh, uh, tonight, yeah. But uh, I believe there's a there's a preview. But I guess it's a general audience as it opens. Yeah, tomorrow night, Friday night. Mm-hmm. So after you see it, can you come back and, and, and next week's show tell us a little bit about what that's uh, how, how well it if it's uh, like the, like real thing exactly. Yeah, I sure could. Frank Sorcy, thanks so much. We'll look forward to uh, finishing this conversation next week. Okay. Well, we're certainly looking forward to talking to Frank uh, on next week's show at greater length about the fam- most famous racehorse of all time and, and why that's important. It really is a very compelling story. I um, I was a little skeptical that this book could be, you know, live up to the, the bestseller that it's supposed to be. And, um, well, read it. It'll convince you. All right, back to the story that we started out with. Governor Gray Davis is headed for a recall vote. But this story's plot keeps thickening. Lieutenant Governor Cruz Bustamante, who's not buddy-buddy with the governor, is apparently deciding that, well, he's not sure that, according to California law, you get to then pick the successor. He may leave it up to the California Supreme Court to decide whether if you recall a governor, he becomes the governor, or just what you do. The story's quite a snarled mess right now. We will continue to follow it with you. You know, I, I must say, I'm, I'm somewhat unenthusiastic about, uh, about our governor, as are a lot of people, but considering some of the alternatives, I'm leaning toward keeping him. Uh, did you know that Daryl Issa, the man who is spearheading the recall effort, is the man who gave you the car alarm? He's a millionaire. He made his money with car alarms. Think of what car alarms, the benefit that car alarms have brought to all of our lives. Because after all, when we hear a car alarm, what do we all do? We stop whatever we're doing and we rush out to see if that car's owner may need our assistance. Isn't that what we all do with 8,000 car alarms going off at all hours of the day around us? No, to the contrary. We hope that the car thief will finish his job as soon as possible and drive the offending vehicle away. I mean, when you're a kid, remember that story about the boy that cried wolf? 
Daryl Issa has given us in California's car culture, boys crying wolf all day long. We're going to try and do an interview with, with Mr. Issa's camp, I think, uh, in, in the next couple of weeks and see if we can't... Uh, can't look uh, peer more into his mind. You know, this is a man that wants to be governor, very arch conservative Republican from, I believe, San Diego. We're going to see what 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 makes Mr. Issa tick, because you know it's very odd. To my recollection, now correct me if I'm wrong, but a couple of years ago, it was the stated position of the Republican Party that they just simply couldn't possibly go to the effort of recounting the votes that had been cast in Florida, whereas in stark contrast in California. They're demanding that we hold a special election, a special election to get rid of a guy who, by all accounts, was fairly put in office. Does this strike you as a little odd, a little inconsistent? Well, it does me. As far as the death of uh, Saddam Hussein's two near-do-well sons go, well, I don't think that anybody around the world is mourning their loss, in, inside or outside of Iraq. These were some, um, some bad guys, especially Uday, who apparently was, uh, you know, uh, had a, a well-deserved reputation for uh, sadism, really, throughout the country. Um, I am a little bit startled to see the, the complete show of force involving helicopters and rockets that were involved against one house of four men with small arms fire. But in the end, you know, again, no one's mourning the loss of these, these bad actors. Someone who I, I am feeling a great deal of sympathy for in regards to the war in Iraq is Private Jessica Lynch. Now, um... Yesterday, Private Lynch apparently returned to her home in, uh, in West Virginia. She's been in the hospital now for something like 100 days after the injuries the 20-year-old sustained um, in Iraq when they were ambushed. Um, she was not shot. She apparently suffered mostly from um, a vehicle, a motor vehicle accident in, in all of the mayhem. But she's become a bit of a political football. And I, I, I feel sorry for what may, may come of this for this poor young girl. She was doing her duty. She was serving in the military. She was sent to Iraq. She was involved in a very unfortunate uh, ambush where 12 out of 30 people, something like, like that, were, were killed. Um, it's an everyday terrible thing about war, and I think we forget how terrible war is. Um, I'm, I'm glad that Private Lynch is home. I'm glad that she's well. I'm sorry, however, to see that the Pentagon is using her, again, as a political football. They were trying to rally public support during a particular grim time of the war, things were not going as well as uh, that we'd been promised at that part, um, at that juncture. And when this happened, uh, the United States military staged a rescue. They basically went in with a SWAT team approach with helicopters. They immobilized the physicians in the facility with tape. They immobilized patients in the facility, including some on an IV with tape. They interrogated people. They knew that the hospital no longer had any armed people in it. And the truth of the matter is, the doctors in Iraq had tried to send Private Lynch back to the American lines in an ambulance. The ambulance was shot at. Um, she says now that she can't really remember what happens. I think that's I think that's probably you know a story of convenience. You know, it's terrible what happened to her. I'm glad she's well. But I hope in the future they do not try and make a big-budget Hollywood epic about the heroism of Private Lynch returning fire. There were all these stories that were being told about her shooting at the troops, you know, John Wayne style as she was being taken into custody. This was 
a public relations campaign by the Pentagon to rally support for a war that wasn't going as well as it was supposed to. That, of course, is in no way, shape, or form the fault of this young woman. And again, I I hope she does well, but I do hope that the real story of how that went down um, gets firmly etched in the public's mind. I think we have to keep in mind how things have really gone down in this war against Iraq. I am genuinely surprised to see that the controversy over this issue of weapons of mass destruction and, and how they have not been found is actually gaining some momentum. In, over in, in the United Kingdom, Tony Blair has been taking a lot of heat over the fact that there have not been weapons of mass destruction located, but so far George Bush has gotten away scot-free. I was a little shocked to be listening to Public Radio International um, yesterday when I heard a guy talking about, you know, black ops, black operations, phony documents, and how, uh, as far as this guy knew, this guy was an intelligence operative, as far as he knew, uh, this was, um, you know, one of the most important incidents in terms of, you know, a fake document, this story about uranium, yellow cake uranium from Niger being sold supposedly to the Iraqis. In the history of espionage, of course, phony documents are an everyday thing, but it's rare when a phony document gets into a, uh, a speech before Congress that apparently is influential in uh, you know, molding public opinion into a you know, pro-war state of mind. Now, uh, this guy on um, Public Radio International was going on a bit about, about you know, how this is done, the black art of phony documents. And he was sort of just sort of talking about it as, you know, like you would, like you would if you were giving a tour of the, uh, the spy museum over in, uh, you know, near CIA headquarters in Washington. But what really struck me between the eyes was when they got done with the interview, they thanked him. They said, well, thank you, Milt Bearden. And I was just going, oh, my God. We're listening to a rather cheery explanation of how this goes down from the man who in Afghanistan was funding the Mujahideen and training no other than Osama bin Laden. Yeah, that Milt Bearden. Oh my. You know, it's interesting to ponder the fact that, you know, over in the United Kingdom, which does not have guaranteed freedom of speech, they were not taking what the government had to say at face value. It's rather ironic that the the government-owned BBC... Uh, feels it has to demonstrate to the public more impartiality in its war coverage than do the supposedly independently owned U.S. networks. I I find that very interesting. The U.S. government power over the media in this country is subtle, but it involves regulatory policies, and, uh, you know, I think that people make it clear how they'd like to see coverage go, and that's how the coverage went. Now, in retrospect, people are saying, why weren't they asking more questions about these weapons of mass destruction? And there's a lot of finger-pointing going on. It's very curious how people at the CIA are saying, well, we, got the, we, we warned him not to put that in the speech. He put it in the speech. It was taken out of the speech. And um, in a way, this kind of diverts attention from the greater issue of the fact that, look, they said they were weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction mean nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, and biological weapons. So far, in spite of the fact that we've combed Iraq from stem to stern, they're 0 for 3. Okay, so, you know, whether there was a phony baloney document about yellow cake from Niger is really of secondary importance and whether Bush bought into it or not. And we're asking again, reminds me of Watergate. What did the president know and when did he know it? It's a a question that's, uh, you know, well worth asking. 
70 people have died since they declared that this war is over in Iraq. People are being sniped at. People are being killed every day. It was a very stupid thing for George Bush to, in effect, dare enemy combatants to attack U.S. military personnel. George Bush said there are some who feel like that, you know, the conditions are such that they can attack us there. Well, my answer is bring them on. I'd like to quote Mary Kiwat, aunt of a 20-year-old American soldier, Edward Hergott killed by a sniper in Baghdad on July 3rd, referring to comments made by President Bush on guerrilla fighting in Iraq. He said, bring it on. Well, they brought it on, and now my nephew's dead. Let's end this segment here with something that's a little cheerier than that. It's actually a very, very cool thing is taking place in this upcoming month of August. The planet Mars is going to make its closest approach to the Earth in something like 50,000 years. Look to the east at night, and you will see this glowing orange beacon rising up. Around midnight, it will be uh, as high as it's going to get in the sky. It's going to be unmistakable, a very cool thing. We're going to talk about this, uh, this closest opposition of Mars at some length on next week's program. Yours truly is actually planning to take a couple of weeks off in August to travel south, somewhere south, because it's going to be better viewing south of Mexico. So I'm going to try and do that. You'll be getting a couple of pre-recorded shows at that point. Or with today's technology, maybe I can do them live from Lima, Peru. Wouldn't that be interesting if I get to Lima, Peru? But anyway, uh, that's going to take a little bit of explaining to talk about why this opposition of Mars is so unusual. And there are three robot space missions that are due to arrive in the Mars vicinity next uh, January. Uh, They're going to be very, very interesting in what they expect to find. Uh, Scientists are sort of um, playing it very close to the vest, but recent evidence suggests that there's a lot more water on Mars than even the most uh, wild-eyed optimist had imagined 20 years ago. And, of course, water means, uh, you know, the possibility of life exists. And, uh, you know, it's not a likely thing, but it certainly can't be ruled out. So we need to send robots to go dig and probe and see what they can find. We'll be following that story with you. We need to take a break now, so let's do that. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. You're listening to 90.3 FM, KDVS. Mm -hmm. 